My name is Luke. If you're a visitor, I'm so glad uh, that you're here with us today. Uh, we are launching a 24-week preaching journey through the book of Mark today. We're going to do a little bit of that today. Um, we're also grappling as a church through just losing one of our close friends and family members, and, and, and we're going to dip into that as well today. And so I had written a full sermon that I was going to preach launching this series uh, earlier in the week, and I'm going to take parts of that and mesh it with what I believe God would say to us on his heart. And so we're going to, we, 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 it's going to be messy. Is that okay? All right. Thank you so much, man. Um, so it was early December, January. No, it was early January. I went on leave. I'd been on leave for about four days. And uh, I found myself scrolling through my news app. I don't, I don't know if you guys have one of these on your phones or your, um, your iPad, but I, was, I found myself, I say I found myself scrolling from my, through my news app because, because I didn't actually decide to go there. It was just kind of how like sometimes on autopilot, I just drift there. Maybe you can relate a little bit in the way we kind of drift towards social media. And I was scrolling through article after article. And honestly, I found myself feeling on holiday now more and more anxious and depressed about the state of the world, you know. And I got to thinking after I held my finger onto that app until it, the little cross began to flicker. And then I killed it. And I deleted the app that will name unmentioned from my device. And I found myself thinking that I think we as a people have become obsessed with bad news. Like media has been, become embroiled in the clickbait wars. And it's almost like if they can get that tile to jump up on your display, and the more, almost, um, the more angst that tile can generate in you, the more anxiety, the more, the more fear that tile can generate for you, the more likely it is that you and I are actually going to click on that thing and follow that little rabbit hole where it goes. And, uh, and, and so literally, uh, we're getting what we want it's not good for us. And so today is a day where I want us to slow down and I want to stop and I want us to focus on the towering person of Jesus. Today we're launching a series through the book of Mark. 24 weeks we're going to be preaching through the book of Mark, half of the book of Mark, in fact the first half, for 24 weeks this year. Why? I want to answer some questions about why this series, why 24 weeks through the book of Mark? Well, I want to tell you why, because we're a church that loves the Bible. We're a church that loves the Bible. We believe that the Bible is inspired by God and that in it is the wisdom that we need to live our lives. Every single season of life that comes our way, we believe that the Bible has wisdom for us to live through. The Bible is a historical account of who God is, of how God has acted in history in people's lives. It's there for us to read. It's what God has done throughout history. It's what God has spoken. And we get to open it and we get to learn about who God is. And we get to learn about what God has done. And we get to learn about how we as his children are to live as we read in the scriptures. And, and read in the scriptures. But I've also learned as a Christ follower, and I'm sure many of us here would testify as well to this, that when you work through a book of the Bible like this, God speaks to us in timely ways as well, doesn't he? I can't tell you how many times I leave church on a Sunday and the very thing that the preacher spoke about is exactly what I needed to hear that week. And some other crisis or situation develops in my life that week and I respond differently than I would have had I not listened to that message because it's literally equipped me on how to live. God speaks to us in timely ways when we read through his word. The last reason I say this is good for us is because we need this book right now. Sorry, right now. 
We're freshly beginning an apprenticeship on Jesus is what it is. Last week I spoke about how we need to relearn how to live in the ways and in the rhythms of Jesus. Our lives are so busy. We're constantly overwhelmed. We're always on. There's this incessant underlying anxiety that shapes who we are and who we're becoming. And the truth is we need an intervention as human beings. We need an intervention as Christ followers on how we live in Jesus's ways in the midst of a world that is sped up so much. It feels like it's lost its bearings and lost its mind. We're coming back to Jesus to say, Jesus, as we study who you are in the gospel of Mark, will you teach us how we ought to live? Does that make sense? Who was Mark? Who was this guy, Mark? Well, let me tell you who he was. Mark, or John Mark, as he's known in the scriptures, was the son of a widow named Mary. Uh, Their home in Jerusalem was used by early Christians as a bit of a ministry hub. He was also the cousin of a wealthy businessman who turned later into a missionary named Barnabas, uh, on the back of whom the gospel spread to many regions and to many places. Mark was his cousin. In fact, Mark used to travel along on missionary journeys with Barnabas and Paul, and he himself was the cause of a great disagreement that split them up for a few years. It was uh, something that Mark did. We're not quite sure what it was. He obviously had some sort of blunder. And uh, they were going to go again, Paul and Barnabas. And Paul said, no, we can't take this guy. He let us down. Barnabas said, we must take this guy. We need him. And they actually split up, Paul and Barnabas, in Acts 15. You can read about it on the basis of whether, whether or not we take Mark with us. I think, and I, we're reading in much, I think Paul was probably wrong and Barnabas was probably right. Because later we see that Mark is restored to relationship with Paul. As Paul writes, and we read in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me, but get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he did spend a lot of time with them. In fact, the leading scholarly thought tell us that, uh, that Mark was Peter's translator. Mark was Peter's translator and partner in ministry. In fact, Peter speaks of him in 1 Peter 5.13. This is what Peter has to say of Mark. Uh, Speaking first, uh, he's at the end of this one here. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And here's this little bit here. And so does Mark, my son. Peter obviously became very close with Mark in all the time that they spent together ministering together. So Mark is Barnabas' cousin, widow, uh, son of the widow Mary, whose home the gospel grew in. And later on, Mark becomes this ministry partner of Peter. Mark was the first one to write a gospel account. But can you see, can you imagine with me, how it came together? There is Mark with Peter. For decades, they're ministering together. Peter speaks and he talks to different people, ministering, telling them of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, of what it means for their their lives. And every time Mark is with them and Mark is repeating these words to people, Peter every time is not trying to come up with something new or something fancy, but Peter is simply recounting the story of who Jesus is, of what Jesus did and what Jesus spoke. And eventually, day after day, week after week, year after year, these things become almost ingrained into Mark's mind. And Mark sits down probably because he worked out either Peter had been martyred already, we're not sure exactly the date, or 
they were under persecution, and it was any moment that Peter was going to be taken from them, and he sits down, and the two of them together, all post-Peter's uh, being martyred, he writes this account of all that he learned from Peter. And he writes it, he, he's a scholarly guy. I mean, he uses literary devices like irony. He, he, he uses, there's actually a term called a Markian sandwich, which comes from the way in which Mark would take a story that Jesus was telling, and he'd tell part 1A, and then he would take another story and he'd weave it in here before he went to part 1B, and somehow together he would wrap up a theme. He was a skilled writer talking of all that he heard from Peter's first-hand account from the years with Christ. And that copy was handed down through generations, and it finds its way here with us in this room today. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a goosebumpy thing, isn't it? That's what we get to look through today. Are you ready? Guys, you're getting a very shortened version of the sermon, and I want to set up the series, and we're going to be moving towards that table because we know that Jesus has promised to meet us at this table, and we're going to meet with him in a few minutes, and so that's where we're heading. Let's read together from Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 8 as we start our journey in Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, this is John the baptizer, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. The amazing thing of John was he had appeal in the religious and the irreligious, he had appeal in the rich and the poor, he had a. He, he related to all people in the same way. He had grace-healed eyes and didn't see people with prejudice and was able to minister to all of them, the kind of people we want to be. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore leather belts around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, a little bit of a dietary reference here. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word in a, in a messy meeting today, Father, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us from your word. Every single one of us. Anchor us in the truth that is timeless, that is eternal, and that is so needed in our lives right now, we ask. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's look at verse 1. And this is really going to be our key verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This verse is the key verse to understanding the whole of the book of Mark. It's the primary thesis of the entire book. Effectively, Mark lands his punchline with zero buildup in the first line of the book. Boom. Jesus is the Son of God come as our Savior King. It's our big idea for the day, and it's the big idea for the series. Jesus is the Son of God, come as our Savior King. I'll say it one more time. Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, the Son of God who came as our Savior 
king. And what he does for the rest of the first half of the book of Mark is he just begins telling you why this is true. He, he makes the statement and he, for the rest of the book, builds his case. And it's even what he does in this uh, text today as he makes the statement and then he says, oh, but don't you know, in the Old Testament it was promised that the Messiah would come and when he comes, there would be a messenger And then he says, but can't you see the messenger has come? This is who the messenger is. It's John the Baptist. And this is how you can know that it's true. Jesus is the son of God and he's come as our savior king. The second half of the book takes a slightly different tack. Then we understand why he came. The son of God as our savior king came to the cross. The first half of the book, three years. The second half of the book, eight days. That's why we're studying the first half this year. So what's the punchline? What's the big theme to carry in our minds in 2020? Jesus is the Son of God come as our Savior King. It's a massive claim. Mark uses the word gospel there. This is the gospel of the Son of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Interesting word gospel. It's the Greek word euvangelion, euvangelion, which literally means the good news. It's a word used at the time of Jesus, for instance, when a king won a battle. You can imagine uh, the village is oh, it's missing half the people because the warriors have gone out to fight. And those who are left behind are wondering. It's before the age of cell phones and, and news apps and all sorts. They're wondering how things are going. What's going to change? And one day into town would come a procession or a group of people and they would make some noise and they'd come to this, the town uh, square and they would say, here is the gospel of King David's victory over the Philistines. And you would hear the good news of how things have actually turned out in the real world. But what's interesting about this word gospel and good news is it's used throughout the Greco-Roman world in its plural form, which means it's almost like the good news update. You know how your phone uh, has um, all these little software updates that keep coming, right? And little, it's like, they often call them bug fixes, you know? It's like this little thing, and, and it just updates, and it just helps it work nicely. That's how gospel was used in its plural form like the this this is the latest update of the news that's going on except in one place it was only ever used in its singular form in the new testament in other words this is not like one among many of latest updates mark is saying but rather this is you know like it happens once every few years when they come out and they bring a brand new operating system and it's almost like the update to end all updates and from then on when you open your device it, it has a new look it has a new operating system it it functions in a slight in a different way does it you know what i mean this is what mark is saying he says this is the gospel to end all gospels it's the update it's jesus has come and a new era has dawned the son of god has come our savior king has come and nothing will ever be the same again this is not business as usual this is not the world will continue as it always was but something has changed and forever things will not be the same is mark's claim the world is under a new operating system a new age is dawned the son of god has come as our savior king and mark is pitching to us that we would hear this see this and begin this apprenticeship This journey where we reorientate our entire lives around who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. As we we start to dream differently, we start to believe differently, we start to behave differently. We take our whole life and we bring it under this good news. And we start to, to live 
totally different lives in light of this truth that is coming to us. Does that make sense? Does that sound like your life, I wonder? Does that sound like how we are engaging with Jesus? In an age where I think the world and its discipleship culture so strongly is influencing our lives, we need to, as Christ followers, draw a line and to come back and to say, no, this is the good news around which we will orientate all of who we are. And this is what we do through this series, through the book of Mark, and it's what Mark is calling us to. And then uh, we, we, we get this little interlude about this guy, John the Baptist. Or John the Baptizer, he wasn't a Baptist. Uh, uh, for a long time as a young Christian, I thought John was a Baptist, and that's where the Baptist movement came from. And, uh, and I was a Presbyterian growing up, and so I remember my Presbyterian pastor meeting a Baptist pastor one day, and he said, well, that's fine to his Baptist pastor friend. He said, you keep baptizing the way John baptized. We'll keep baptizing the way Jesus baptized, and that's fine. We'll carry on together anyway. He's John the Baptizer. That's who he is. Let's read about him together here. Verse 4 to verse 8. In, in fact, we've read it already. Can I leave it up there and reference it as we go? What can we learn from John the Baptist? Well, firstly, he was the original hipster, right? He was the original hipster. Cape Town would have loved this guy. Organic, free-range, meat-free diet, right? Locally go- grown, freely available. Organic, natural clothes, leathers, a beard, I mean, this guy was way before his time. You can just imagine him walking around Scarborough, right? For those of you guys who live in Scarborough, I'm sure you're not offended. You probably agree with me, right? But I want to take a few minutes to, I think, summarize his message here. His message was this, make room for Christ in your hearts because he's coming. Make room for Christ in your hearts. Christ is coming. Come and be washed clean from all that would separate you from him. Christ is coming and there has never been nor will there ever be one like him. He says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and and do his sandals, you know. But when Christ comes, he will make it possible for God's spirit to live within his people And this spirit infilling in your life will change everything. You see that? You see that in there? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word baptize is an interesting word. Do you know that there's no English word baptize before the Bible came about? Baptize is actually a Greek word. It's the Greek word baptismo. And sometimes what happens when Bible translators go to work on translating from Greek to English, they come across a word for which there's no English reference. If you were to directly translate baptize, you know what you get? You get dip. You get immerse. It doesn't quite do justice to what they felt was experiencing in the scriptures. And so the word baptizo or baptize actually means to immerse, to plunge into. And the picture that would have been in the minds of people that day was imagine taking a shirt, a white piece of cloth that had been made into a a garment, for instance. And you take that white garment and then you put it into, you baptize put in, that's literally what baptize means. You put it in, immersing it into a bucket full of dye. Maybe a different color dye, maybe a blue dye. 
And what happens is as, the, as, that, as that garment soaks up, it, it, it takes, it absorbs, it soaks, it draws into, him, into itself the, the thing it's being immersed into. And then it emerges from there different and transformed by the thing that it's taken into it. You follow that metaphor? That's what's going on. And John is saying, yeah, I baptize you with water. Next week, Tim Hoffman, back in the pulpit, going to be preaching around Jesus' baptism. It's going to be amazing. But John points to a baptism whereby we as Christ followers are put into Christ. Soak up the Holy Spirit in who we are and emerge transformed, carrying something of that which we were soaked in with us forever. That's what is there for us as Christ followers. It's a glorious picture of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not just to follow this logical, defendable, great faith in a cognitive way. But there is something supernatural that is happening in our faith that is inescapable when you read the Scriptures. And it's this dynamic of being put into Christ, of Christ then filling you and going with you. In fact, Jesus would speak about the Holy Spirit many times. One of the names that Jesus uses describing the Holy Spirit is our comforter. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as our comforter. In John 14, verse 16, Christ speaking of the same Holy Spirit that we can be baptized into, he says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a comforter, to be with you forever. That is such a wonderful promise. You see, because Mark knew, as Jesus knew, as he was saying goodbye to his disciples, that there would be hardships and there would be difficulties that Christ followers would face in this life. And the life of a Christ follower is not an easy one. It's filled with persecution. It's filled with oppression. It's already, but it's also not yet. It's filled with loss and it's filled with grief. Mark gives us in this passage today two keys to help us through hardships. One is a great truth. It's the great truth that Jesus is the Son of God who has come as our Savior King. It's not God up there who clicks a button and sends an email on your behalf and solves your problem. But it's God, the Son of God, who comes Himself, who rolls up His sleeves, who takes on flesh who becomes a human being, steps into the frailty and the brokenness and the pain of humanity. And from within, he comes to be our savior. He's a God who understands every facet of humanity. Not aloof and disconnected, but personally involved in our world. But he gives us one great truth, but he gives us one ongoing sustenance in this passage. I said it before, and I'm sorry, I'm going to offend half the people in the room. I'm not an English football fan, but if you would have forced me to choose a team, we never walk alone. Why? Because that's what I see in Christ promising the Holy Spirit to be our helper. We never walk alone. The Christian life means that every hardship, every trial is lived 
by the power and the strength and the guidance and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. To be a Christ follower is more than a good, logical, rational decision that is both good for your morality and good for the world. It is much more than that. Yes, that is true, but it is so much more than that. The plain teaching of the Scriptures is to become a Christ follower, is to invite God Himself into your life, to to shape who you are, to be your comforter, to be your helper, to walk with you day by day, every step of your life. Some of those are easy and those are steps that you are skipping through life on. Others of them, we are trudging, but we never walk alone. Mark gives us today a comforting truth. Jesus is the Son of God, come as our Savior King. Jesus is also He gives us the Spirit of God that we are baptized into, that we would never walk alone, and the Spirit sustains us. So let's fast forward three years, and can I ask uh, just a few volunteers from, from, from whoever in the church here, any of us, to just grab, come to this table over here and over there, and to pick up some of these um, plates of bread and uh, these little uh, glasses of grape juice, and to share them out in the church as we do that, please, I want us to share communion together. Anyone, there's no one, as long as you're a Christ follower, would you carry these elements, please? Three years later, After this part of the story we've read today, fast forward, and and Jesus is sitting with his disciples around a table, and uh, on this table, there's a glass of wine, which is represented by this grape juice here, and uh, a loaves of bread and a loaf of bread represented by this um, matzos here. And as they sit at the table, Jesus has already told them that he's going to the cross. He's told them that he's about to die. He's told them already that he's going to be separated from, from them, and he knows, and they know, that they're not sure what life is going to be like on the other side of Christ's leaving them. They'd built their whole lives together with Christ, walking with Him, following Him, embracing His teachings, and suddenly that was all going to change. And so there was uncertainty and there was fear at the table. And to these ordinary Christ followers like you and I, Jesus speaks these words. And we, Paul writes about them to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. Would you raise your hand if you haven't yet got bread? Just keep, keep your hand raised. Interesting thing about uh, a loaf of bread. 
there are many different grains that go into making one loaf. And I think that is something of the picture that Jesus had for his church. There are many different lives, each one different, that is brought together to become one body. Some of those grains are in great space. Some of those grains are limping. But together we make up the body of Christ as a family. And there are many grapes that were pressed And it's literally in the crushing of the grapes that they find themselves united together into one wine. As we, as the body of Christ, many different grapes become one body. Now this table represents grace to us. In fact, we call call this a sacrament. A sacrament is a church word. We use it for baptism. We use it for this communion. You know what sacrament means? It means grace. At this table, we celebrate grace, but we celebrate saving grace. Saving grace speaks of when Christ, once and for all, the sinner crosses the line of faith. God gives us saving grace, and in that grace allows our minds, enables our minds to understand in humility our deep need for God, because we struggle with that. In humility, our deep need for Him. And, and, and in that moment, he wakes us up to the reality of who God is, and we're saved. But this is a table to be enjoyed in an ongoing way, and there's another kind of grace. There's saving grace, and maybe for you in this room, today is the day you wouldn't call yourself a Christ follower, but, but you recognize you need saving grace. God, God has humbled you today to the point where you, you realize, I need grace from God to live in His ways. I cannot live any may, any, anymore in the ways of this world. I want to live in Christ's ways. Then this is, a, this is the meal of saving grace for you. For the majority of us in the room, this is a table of sustaining grace. You know why Jesus chose these elements? Because we eat bread, well, before Tim Noakes anyway, we eat bread more than anything else in our lives. And in those days, the wine was safer than the water, you know, to drink. You ate wine as well as sustained you every day, sustained. When Jesus said, this is my body that is broken for you, this is my blood that is shed for you, do this in remembrance of me. We don't believe that these things physically turn into Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. But we believe that something of who Christ is supernaturally is imparted to us as we do this together. And so together as a family, guys, we do this with you. We say, Jesus, in the midst of our brokenness, we take you into who we are, the body of Christ broken for us. Thank you, Jesus, that your body was broken for Ruth's wholeness. Thank you, Jesus, that your body was broken for my wholeness. Thank you, Jesus, that you sustain my body here on earth by your grace. And as I drink of this grape juice now, 
I thank you, Christ, that nothing could ever separate me from your love because your blood covers all of my sins. And Jesus, as we take into ourselves these elements symbolic of your body and your blood, Jesus, would you meet us at your table with sustaining grace now? I want to give you just a moment to pray some private prayers, inviting the sustaining grace in the midst of a crazy world. Has terrible lows to say God you sustain me Jesus you are not aloof Jesus you are not disconnected you have filled me with your spirit and there is grace enough to walk from this place there is hope in my heart because I know where I'm headed and your blood and your body ensure that nothing would get in the way of that Jesus.